welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. Hi, everyone. Uh, so here we have Dr. Armin Kiankui. He's from the, the program at USC. We're delighted to have him here for this interview tonight. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. No problem. Thanks for having me, Jason. So like Jason said, my name is Armin Kiankui. I'm an assistant professor at Keck USC here in Los Angeles. Um, I've been an attending cardiac surgeon now working on my fifth year. I um, did my cardiac training at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville uh, back in 2012 through 2014. I then went to Cedar sinai in Los Angeles and did a heart failure, lung failure, kind of MCS-VAD fellowship for a year. And then when I finished there, I actually went into private practice in Los Angeles for two years. And then I came back to academia and joined um, USC here in 2016. Oh, perfect. And the, the way we got connected initially was in a discussion about arrhythmia surgery. And it's a perfect segue to discussing that conversation. Uh, did you always know when you were training that you would be developing an expertise and a practice in arrhythmia surgery? You know, it's kind of interesting. I was I was lucky enough when I was at UVA, um, Dr. Gaurav Alawadi was one of the investigators in the initial um, clamp studies and the initial ablate studies. And so, as a as a fellow, I was assisting Dr. Alawadi during the the what we now call the deep um, procedure, which is the hybrid epicardial endocardial procedure. And so, I kind of got a glimpse of what AFib surgery could look like. Um, with Dr. Alawadi, and then just serendipitously, when I was at Cedars, um, the principal, the national principal investigator, Ali Konazad, happened to be there when I was doing my transplant fellowship. And so I got to work with him too. And I think it was really, you know, just the pure coincidence of being able to work with both of those guys that really got me interested in AFib surgery. And then when I went into private practice, I joined a group of two other surgeons, and one was about 10 years senior to me, one about 12 years senior. Great surgeons, phenomenal surgeons, but they were really not treating much for AFib. And I reached out to one of my mentors, Gan Dunnington, who was a big AFib guy here on the West Coast who also trained at UVA. And kind of because of that connection, he really took me under his wings and said, hey, let me show you how to get some real experience at this deep procedure or the minimally invasive procedure and, um, you know, did some procedures with him and then really quickly just kind of having that skill set and then taking an interest in AFib, it, it really just let me mature and develop an AFib surgical practice right away in private practice just because it was an unmet need and my partners got excited about me having my own niche and, you know, it's such an undertreated population of patients that it just kind of grew on itself so yeah it's really interesting that you you uh, are describing as an as an unmet need and a place where you can grow a niche into quickly um, because I guess the recent studies are showing that the prevalence of AFib is extremely high in this country and continuing to rise but do you do you find that in your patient population in your practice that that there is a growing need and, and more of a space to for younger surgeons to f fill into? Oh, definitely, 100%. I mean, I think in the past, when you saw AFib on a patient's past medical history, it kind of 
fell into that realm of, oh, they have hypertension, dyslipidemia, obesity, and AFib, and it kind of just rolled off your tongue. You didn't really even think about it. But I think nowadays, knowing how bad AFib is for you, whether it's in a concomitant cabbage situation, a concomitant valve situation, that if you look for it and you identify it and you treat it, you can really help your patients. And so I think it's kind of twofold. I think we know that there's more patients with AFib. We're looking for the AFib, and we're looking for it because we know we, if we treat it successfully, our patients do better. So I guess that's a roundabout way of answering your question and saying, yeah, yeah, I definitely think it's more prevalent and um, we're treating it more. So uh, how would you say that's been reflected in the percentage of your of your current cases and your practice, do you find that it's it's growing in proportion? And about what percentage of your current practice do you currently dedicate to uh, performing arrhythmia surgery? Yeah, so I, you know, because I have a transplant background as well, I still about half my practice is advanced heart failure, lung transplant, heart transplant. Then the other half of my practice is what we would kind of consider bread and butter cardiac surgery, so valves, cabbages as aortic work, um, and then obviously the AFib component. So what I would say is that more and more of my patients that I would treat in that kind of quote-unquote bread-and-butter category are patients who have AFib also. And it's not uncommon for me to identify up to probably 75% of my patients that I take for cabbage and valve have AFib. And so I would say about that percentage of my patients now get some sort of concomitant um, surgery. So whether it's a cabbage maze, ABR maze, mitral maze, and then about 25% of my practice um, is still standalone AFib. So because of my interest, because of the minimally invasive skills, um, I get referred um, a handful of AFib cases every single month that are just standalone where I'll perform, you know, the totally thoracoscopic, you know, surgical ablations for AFib. So that's no, my practice right now. No, that's fantastic, it, especially because I think uh, as trainees, we're only starting to get exposed to the, the literature behind how harmful AFib can be and, and conversely how beneficial it can be when you concomitantly treat it. I guess I'm wondering, what do you find to be some of the most compelling and rewarding aspects of, of performing those types of operations in your patient care? Do you find that uh, there are cases where you, you find strong examples of, of it benefiting patients uh, immediately and in the long term? And do you find that feeding back into your practice on a day-to-day -day basis? Sure, yeah. So. Um... You know, I think the most rewarding are actually the standalone cases. So when you have relatively healthy young patients, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, who come to the office, you get referred a patient who, whose only cardiac disease is their AFib and they're symptomatic from it, whether it's shortness of breath, uh, dysmenorrhea exertion, a lot of these younger patients, they just want to be active and they can't be active because when they exercise, they get palpitations, they don't feel well, they get fatigued faster than they used to. And then with a minimally invasive approach, if you can treat those patients, reduce their AFib burden, prevent their heart from remodeling, uh, maintain their normal valve function, you know, those patients are super thankful. They're they're probably the most thankful patients I have because 
they didn't require a sternotomy, they recovered really quickly, and now their AFib burden is next to nothing. And, um, you know, and you've, you've kind of given them back their normal life without a really invasive procedure. So um, those are probably the most kind of thankful, grateful patients that I, that I get to treat in the AFib world. Yeah, it seems like a, a very compelling patient population. Uh, I guess I'm curious about the relationships that you have formed with cardiologists and electrophysiologists in the area to be able to conduct these operations for your patients. How, how does that relationship work and how did you develop it over time? So at the beginning, it was really just even mentioning an interest. And so, um, I mean, I remember really clearly when I was just out of training, I had just finished my, you know, my transplant fellowship, was out in private practice, I got a coronary bypass referral. And I went and saw the patient and then saw the cardiologist down the hall. And I was like, you know, yeah, this guy has coronary disease. Um, he has some risk factors for some post-op AFib and post-op stroke. Do you want me to clip his appendage? And he was like, wow, you know, no one's really even mentioned that in this hospital. And no, I would love it. Go ahead and clip it because I think you're going to prevent a lot of strokes if, if that's part of your practice. And I was like, of course. And then just that conversation alone kind of sparked this dialogue between us where anytime he had a patient with AFib and some other cardiac disease, he'd send it to me. And then before you know it, his group knew I was kind of the AFib guy or the guy who would manage the left atrial appendage. Wow. And so it really set me apart and it just kind of ignited my practice. And it was just, it was the most simple conversation that started it. Just showing that you have an interest in AFib because, you know, there are not a lot of surgeons who are really interested or passionate about arrhythmia surgery. You know, it's kind of that thing that's left behind. And if you just show that interest, you know, the referring docs love it. And so that kind of spilled into other groups. And then before you know it, the hospital knows you're interested in AFib surgery. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, the, you know, and then, and then you come up with the EP groups and the EP groups start to refer you patients that are difficult or they haven't responded to other treatments like medications or catheter ablations. And you know, both of us know with the number of patients out there who have AFib, I mean, it's just a matter of time. As soon as you show interest, you just, you get more referrals than you thought you ever would, especially just straight out of training. As, as a young surgeon, it's a, it's a fertile, fertile opportunity to, to grow your practice. Yeah, it's a gift. One of my follow-up questions to that is, I'm curious about uh, you, you described the process by which you were able to pick up some lessons from your training at UVA and then some lessons from after having arrived in California and then that you connected with a mentor. Um, what was that training process like? Uh, how many cases do you find yourself uh, needing to participate in before you became comfortable uh, doing it independently for your patients and adding it to your practice? Um, have there been any iterations that you know, further optimize the process in your last several years of practice? Yeah, those are some really good questions. So I'll try to answer in kind of two different parts. So I think the first part is really just the concomitant maze. So you're talking about performing a maze procedure in the setting of a some other open heart surgery, whether it's a cabbage or a valve. 
I think that skill set, I would hope that most trainees are learning during their fellowship. And if they're not learning, you know, they can seek out, you know, weekend courses. But really, the, the open concomitant maze is kind of the foundation for AFib surgery. And I think to do that kind of smoothly and to really feel like you can handle that in the setting of another component of cardiac surgery, you're probably talking about, you know, a solid 10 cases where you're clipping mm-hmm. the appendage, you're isolating the veins, you're creating your left atrial box, you're doing your right atrial lesions. And what I talk about when I teach my fellows or when I'm teaching fellows courses around the country is really not to try to bite off too much all at once. So when you first get out of training and you get your first cabbage referral, make sure you can do the cabbage. Make sure you can do the cabbage mm-hmm. safely because that's why you were referred the patient. And then as you work through your you know, your early career and you've identified another cabbage patient who has AFib and you want to incorporate the maze procedure into it, then it's about, I think, a safe way to approach it and a smart way so you have some good early results is to take a s- approach to it. So maybe the first time you identify a patient who needs coronary disease or who, you know, needs a cabbage who has coronary disease and they have a lot of risk factors for a stroke so then you successfully clip them and do the cabbage and then maybe the next progression is you have a patient who has paroxysmal afib and a cat and they need the cabbage and so you isolate the veins and then maybe the next progression is you have someone who has you know persistent afib and coronary disease and then you take that leap and you do a full cox maze four with a cabbage i think um, that sort of progression is probably the safe way to incorporate a maze procedure into your open setting. And, you know, and obviously that, that depends on how comfortable you are with the initial surgery, whether it's a cabbage or an aortic valve or a mitral mm-hmm. valve. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but there are significant steps to a maze that require time and require practice. And um, so that, that arena and then the second arena, kind of the standalone AFib procedures, you know, I think it's it's one of those it's not like um, some of the more nuanced and sophisticated procedures we do in cardiac surgery. You know, for example, if if you take your your bentol or your bio root, you know, you can get through a root your first, you know, second, third, fourth root. You can probably do one, but it, there's probably these kind of progressions and then plateaus. So once you do your first 10, you feel pretty comfortable. Then you do your first 20 and you, you say, oh, wow, my first 10 weren't actually that smooth. Now I'm <laughs> much smoother. And then you do your first 50 and you're like, my gosh, if I compare my last, you know, my next 50 compared to my first 20, like they're two totally different cases. <laughs> Even though you've, you've done the same surgery, you know, there's, as we all kind of do these surgeries, um, we get better at certain parts and we get smoother at certain parts. And so to answer your question, you know, I do think it probably takes a good 20 standalone cases mm-hmm. before you've really kind of honed down your, um, your technique and how, how you can approach it efficiently. Mm-hmm. And, and another interesting element that you raised is that, you know, while, while you definitely see benefit among your patients, after receiving this intervention, uh, whether for concomitant or standalone approaches, 
you also said that oftentimes there is an unmet need and despite the benefit that when you when you offer to incorporate this into your practice that it was met with open arms among people within your community uh, and that you definitely had a, a strong role for it up front. And more and more, I guess, evidence is accumulating that untreated AFib may lead to worse outcomes. And also that now that it's more formally incorporated into guidelines, more surgeons are starting to incorporate it into their practices. What, what do you find to be the barriers to surgeons who are already in practice uh, from taking in this component into their practice? Yeah, good question. So, like you said, you know, there's class one indications or recommendations now to do a maze, you know, during a common mitral valve surgery. I think a lot of surgeons feel relatively comfortable doing that, even though the numbers are still disappointing. So, you know, depending on the study you reference, it could be anywhere from 25 to maybe 35 at most. You know, there's one study that talks about a 68% treatment of um, AFib in the concomitant mitral population. Um, I, I do think that's probably the first place to start. So I think most surgeons feel comfortable doing a maze procedure um, in the setting of a mitral valve. I think some of the hesitancy comes from, you know, unfortunately, up until probably about 10 years ago, we weren't very clear on what the best lesion set was. We, weren't, we didn't have great data on how effective it was. And so if you look at surgeons who are 10, 15, 20 years out from training, you know, very, um, very justifiably, they weren't given good evidence that the maze procedure was beneficial. So I think a lot of the hesitation for more seasoned surgeons comes from the fact that they didn't have good evidence that what mm -hmm. a maze procedure could provide. So <clears throat> I think for for this generation of surgeons and kind of surgeons who are five to 10 years out, where we now have good evidence, I think that's less of an issue. I think the next kind of <clears throat> uh, barrier to the maze procedure is for those concomitant cases where you're not inherently going into the left atrium, so an aortic valve replacement or a cabbage. Mm -hmm. And I think the hesitation comes from the increase. Is it um, safe to do the maze procedure in that concomitant setting? So is it worth taking the extra risk, open the left atrium, opening the right atrium to do the complete lesion set? And I think now we have the data that it is. It is safe. And I think the, the next step is to really provide the education and the training so that people feel comfortable doing a maze procedure just as comfortable as they are with a cabbage or an AVR. Because I think all of us would agree, <clears throat> you know, if you had a patient who had aortic stenosis and MR, and you felt comfortable doing an aortic valve replacement and a mitral valve repair or replacement, you would do them both. You wouldn't even blink. You would say, hey, this is what the patient needs. Right. I feel comfortable doing both. So I'm going to do both. Um, but for some reason, when you have AFib and AS, you know, there's, there's a lot of hesitation. I mean, the, the numbers are abysmal. I mean, you're looking at a 15 to 20% <laughs> treatment rate of AFib with AS in the open setting. And I think that more has to do with our um, 
our need to train surgeons to feel comfortable with the maze procedure, to feel safe with the maze procedure. So when they're presented that in practice, that the trainee now feels comfortable doing both procedures. And so I think they'll commit to it. Um, and I think that's kind of the next step we need to do as people who are interested in AFib surgery and, and teaching people is to really kind of make trainees as experts in AFib surgery as we do cabbage mitral and aortic valve disease. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point that uh, currently surgeons view AFib surgery as being slightly outside of their core armamentarium of services that they offer. So like you said, if they have to treat certain diseases that fall within their routine uh, care, then then they're comfortable expanding that. But if if it includes this entity that has recently become incorporated as as a, as a class one guideline, then then they feel like it is somewhat outside of their 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 core uh, set of services and feel more hesitant to do so. So for trainees that are coming out in the next decade or so, uh, would you have any general recommendations on how they can maximize their exposure and and gain the necessary skill sets during and even beyond their duration of training? Right. So I think during training, you know, um, Atricure does a really nice job of setting up fellows courses around the country. So I would I would encourage trainees, you know, when they can to get to one of these courses. I think they're nice for a couple of different reasons. There's often an electrophysiologist there who can provide you kind of the basics, as if you will, kind of the surgeons um, need to know about AFib. So they'll talk about mechanisms that really put the surgical maze in perspective. So you know why you're doing the lesions you're doing. I think that's really important. Um, and then you'll get surgeons during these courses who've done a lot of them and who have had all the complications and have all had all the successes and they can share with you over just a weekend course, I think, how to do the procedure really safely and how to avoid getting into trouble. So I think as a trainee, going to those fellows courses are invaluable. I think once you're out of training and you're just starting your first job, I think asking for help early and often is super important. So, you know, many, many surgeons around the country, different regions, different institutions are willing to proctor and come help, you know, young surgeons do their first maze successfully. And I don't think there's anything um, wrong with asking for help, even if you do this, the safe complete, you know, the case completely safely on your own to begin with. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just having a surgeon there who can assist you to talk you through certain parts is is super helpful. And so I think as you develop your AFib practice, or as you said, your AFib armamentarium. Um, just asking for help early and often to make sure that you have early good results is really helpful. Um, and then obviously as, as you develop your practice, uh, you know, going to meetings that are specific for AFib. So we just had a really successful CAST AF meeting, which is mm -hmm. catheterization and surgical treatment of AFib meeting. It was the first, you know, meeting um, where we really combined EPs and surgeons for the treatment of AFib. It was a fantastic meeting and then you really start to get into the, the deeper levels of how we treat AFib and why and how we can create kind of AFib teams and work with the electrophysiologists together, just like we do with TAVERS now. 
right now we really have valve teams and taver teams I, I don't think we're that far away from consistently having afib teams in different hospitals different academic settings yeah i, I feel like we are looking at uh the beginning of another sort of paradigm shift in that sense that that the way that people and treatment teams begin to perceive of this operation in this patient population will converge much in the same way, like you mentioned, as with the TAVR population. Uh, so as you're building your practice, what did you find to be some of the most essential tools and gadgets? And I sort of mean that both uh, in a physical sense in the operating room and also in a logistical sense as you're building your practice. Sure. So the technical aspects, so the gadgets, if you will, um, basically the instrumentation for an open concomitant maze would be the same as a mitral valve operation. So, you know, your standard bicable cannulation, your central aortic cannulation, um, your cable tapes, and then your whatever mitral retractor you feel comfortable with through your training. So whether it's handhelds, whether it's the Carpentier, or whatever kind of set of uh, mitral valve retractors you need, um, remembering that you know, initially your goal is to isolate the right veins. Um, and so really, I think one key component of AFib surgery that may be overlooked is being really familiar with the sinuses of the heart. So the oblique sinus and the transverse sinus. You know, it's, it, there's, that's anatomy that most surgeons are not very facile with because unless you do transplant training, you don't really get a really deep understanding of the back of the heart and what those sinuses actually do and what they connect and um, what that anatomy is like. So I think um, short of the instrumentation, which I just mentioned, I think becoming more and more familiar with the sinuses as you do your other cases will allow you to really kind of develop um, into an AFib surgeon kind of mm -hmm. faster and safer. Um, as far as developing a practice, you know, I always, when I teach my fellows, I say, you know, the three most important things about being um, a successful surgeon, I, regardless of your setting, whether it's academics or private practice, are kind of the three A's. Number one is be affable. So you have to be a nice person. You know, we're no longer in a world where, <laughs> you know, we can um, stand up in kind of the, you know, the mecca academic setting right. or the superpower private practice and dictate, you know, how we treat consultants and how we treat nurses. And, you know, you really have to be someone who's approachable. You have to be someone who people want to talk to, someone who people want to refer patients to. Um, the second part is being available. And that means nowadays it's actually a lot easier. You just give out your cell phone, you know, have your cell phone on, text your providers back, call your providers when you're done with cases, text them, let them know how the case went. And, you know, God forbid you have a complication, over, over, over communicate. Providers need to know when there's a complication. They need to know that you care. Mm -hmm. you, they mm -hmm. need to know that you're not going to ignore them or try to um, protect them from a complications. So um, being available. So number one, being affable. Number two, being available. And then three, I think, really is your ability or your skill, you know, the three A's. And so 
you know, if you're a really nice person and you're available, you'll be referred cases and then you can let your ability speak for itself. Mm-hmm. But if, if you if you're the you know God's gift to surgery, but your cell phone's never on and people <laughs> don't want to talk to you, no one's going to see that skill. And so it's, it's really about the first two. And then I think nowadays, you know, most trainees are trained really well and you will have the ability to then impress your referring docs to then continue to build a practice. Yeah, that's that's a really helpful advice, I think. And I think all the listeners in this podcast um, would appreciate, you know, taking some of those lessons and and putting it into their day to day. You've shared a lot of insights, insights with us about the field and how you've uh, become established within it and how you continue to find success in it. And those pearls of wisdom are very helpful for all of us. Uh, are there any last bits of advice that you'd like to share with trainees, whether they're interested whether they're just starting out or whether they're about to finish and start start a practice of their own with regard to this field and arrhythmia surgery that we haven't already covered in our questions? You know, it's, it's interesting. I think um, as kind of to bring it full circle, you know, when you asked me how did I get involved in it or did I think that if it was going to be a big part of my practice, you know, the reality is, is, is as a trainee, I didn't really know. It was something that was interesting to me, and I, and I took it upon myself to get involved, to learn more, to seek out mentorship, and to build the skill set. And like you said, had you asked me five years ago, would have, would have AFib been a big part of my practice today? The reality is the answer would have been, I don't know, mm-hmm. but I'm really glad that I pursued it. And it's such a, still a young um, interesting, wide-open um, specialty that I think if you do take an interest in it, you know, it just has such a high ceiling and so much potential that um, I would really encourage people to at least dive into it to see if it's something that interests them. And kind of tangentially to that, you know, I think most people would say, most attending surgeons would say, what I do now isn't what I trained to do. Um, whether it's TAVR. TAVR wasn't even what most <laughs> right. seasoned surgeons wasn't even available. Mitraclip, um, you know, Fevars and the Arch, you know, all these things weren't even t- trained. You know, we didn't even train in these things. And so what I would emphasize to all the trainees who are listening is keep your eyes open, keep your ears um, peeled for these interventions that maybe at the time you may find inconvenient you may find, um, you know, not in your core, but I, I can promise you it's these kind of peripheral things that are going to be what your practice will become as soon as you're out of training because everyone knows how to do an open aortic valve. Everyone knows how to do a cabbage. Everyone knows how to do a mitral valve. So it's these other segments um, in our field that are going to be the growth sectors that you can really um, you know, kind of place your stamp on and use to create whatever um, <clears throat> whatever career you want, whether that's in private practice or in academics. They're really fertile areas for you to gain expertise pretty quickly and to really make a name for yourself. Well, thanks so much. I mean, this conversation has certainly been really helpful for me. And, and I think while not every single one of us may become experts in the field, I hope that we can collectively sort of address the unmet need that you address, uh, the treatment rate still being very low, offering a great window opportunity for a lot of surgeons who are training right now. Again, I want to thank you for your time and 
and sharing your wisdom with uh, the TSRA community. And uh, we look forward to having you on a podcast in the near future again. Great. Thanks so much for your time, Jason. Pleasure to do it.